progress was the atomic bomb. You can't kill people more efficiently than an atomic weapon or a nuclear weapon. We, as the human race, decided that may be too much progress for us. We collectively decided we are going to put reins on that technology. I think a conversation like that is going to be necessary about AI. And welcome to the Politics Girl podcast. I'm your host, Lee McGowan. Let's get into it. Our society has changed a lot in the last 15 years with the influx of technology, but the speed at which our society changed was drastically accelerated by the pandemic. The shift to online shopping, the increase on for on-demand entertainment streaming, the dichotomy of who we call essential workers and whose paycheck actually rewards the work. Across almost every industry, workers in America are overworked and underpaid, from delivery drivers to Starbucks baristas to pilots, and workers are now collectively starting to push back. They're pushing back against forced overtime, against punishing schedules, against their company's reliance on their work while they remain low-paid part-time or contract workers. They are pushing back on this idea of making sure labor costs stay low while profits go sky high. The Hollywood strike is just another iteration of the same issue of labor unrest, the crushing cost on workers whose jobs have changed dramatically in the name of speed and convenience and profit. And you don't have to be an artist to understand why the writers and actors are striking right now. This strike, like many of the others that are happening this summer, is a fight between America's middle class, America's working class, and the ultra-rich, the people who run the corporations, and their major stockholders, and the bankers, and the people who do the labor and the talent who make those corporations run. This fight in Hollywood is only removed from regular people's lives because it has the glimmer of Tinseltown on it. But to paraphrase Fran Drescher, the Screen Actors Guild president, don't kid yourself, we're all in jeopardy of being replaced by machines. In a summer of strikes, I thought it would be worth unpacking the writers and actors strike with someone who really understands it, Hollywood screenwriter Billy Ray. Now, I've had Billy on before to talk about political messaging, because although he makes his living writing big-budget movies like Hunger Games and Captain Phillips, for which he was nominated for an Oscar and won a Writers Guild Award, he's been on a mission to make sure the American people understand that we're in a battle between democracy and extremism, and it's essential that we make the right choice. But Billy's focus since the WGA went on strike three months ago was to make sure people understood what was at stake. So much so that he's been hosting a weekly podcast for Deadline called Strike Talk since the strike began. So without further ado, please welcome my guest, Academy Award nominated writer-director, Democratic messaging guru, and now labor union podcaster, Billy Ray. Welcome, Billy. It's so good to be with you. It's so good to have you back. I mean, as I was saying in the introduction, the strike that the WGA and now sag after are engaged in is really just part of a bigger picture, this sort of David and Goliath story between the workers of America and the corporate owners. And we can probably throw the rise of the machines on top of that. Uh, unfortunately, yes, that's true. Um, my <laughs> feeling from the start about the Writers Guild strike was that it was the front line uh, in a much larger struggle about the corporatization of America and the worth of the individual and the dignity of work, as, as Sherrod Brown always says. And what I believe is a turning point in, in labor in America. I think that labor has actually sort of bottomed out and is now starting to make a comeback uh, because I think people need community more than ever. And what is a union? I mean, it is it is a community. Yeah, 
I think it's easy to demonize Hollywood, right? Because you can look at them like, oh, these guys have the dream job. They're a bunch of privileged whiners. But I think we need to be really clear that while there is a small group at the top of Hollywood who do make a ton of money, which I would argue they deserve because they're the ones making the studio money, when you take away the glitz and the glamour, entertainment is just another industry full of regular people doing regular work. And the vast majority of people who write scripts or act on shows or build sets or do catering or any of those other jobs that revolve around a Hollywood production, which you can see if you ever sit through movie credits, the majority of those people are not rich and famous. This is a working class career. And in many ways, the entertainment industry is just like any other industry operating under American capitalism, right? Left to their own devices, we can see that companies will always try to push labor costs down and executive pay up, that they will try to make everything about shareholder profit and corporate bonuses and stock buybacks. And that doesn't serve the majority of Americans. And if we don't stand up for labor, as everything changes around us, it's the worker that's going to be crushed. Well, not just the worker. It's, it's the country that's going to be crushed. Um, the country. Yeah, when, when that's American, a good point. When American unions were at their peak, um, you know, 40% of Americans were in a union. Um, that now that number is now under seven. And look what's happened. Uh, in that aggregate time, the middle class has disappeared. Um, that's not a good mm -hmm. thing for a country. And I just want to say, look, for me personally, and I'm not speaking for any other writer or any other uh, person who makes their living in Hollywood. I don't think of myself as an artist. I think of myself as a mechanic. 95% of, of writing is problem solving. You've got a character here, you've got to arc them to there, and you've got to figure out the most efficient way to do it. Um, I'm under the hood all day, just trying to make the engine run right. I, I can tell you, for me, I never, ever, when I'm writing, think, oh, Billy, you genius, you've done it again. You've been touched by grace. <laughs> No, I think that works or that needs to work better. And how can I do that? That's the way I approach my job. I'm, I'm in here from eight to six every day. Um, I'm not surfing the web. I'm not trying to find ex-girlfriends on Facebook. I'm just doing my job because that's how I make a living. It just so happens that I hope that it comes out to be something that moves people, something that other people would call art. But I don't think you can do it if you call yourself an artist. Um, at least that's my approach to it. Now, let me throw some numbers at you that I don't think your audience uh, will be familiar with. First of all, we'll start with the writers. 50% um, of the writers who are working in television today are working at guild minimums. Okay, that's, that's scale. That's the least you can pay them and still be in compliance with the MBA, the minimum basic agreement between the guild and the alliance. Uh, which are the, the massive companies for which we work. Now let's talk about SAG for a second. There are 170,000 members of SAG, the Screen Actors Guild. To qualify for their health plan, which is enough to keep you alive, you need to make $26,470 in a year as an actor. Okay. Now $26,470 in a year is enough to starve in Los Angeles. You can't live in Los Angeles on that number. You can't come close. But it does qualify you for health benefits in SAG, okay? The percentage of SAG's membership that qualified for health benefits in 2022, 12.7%, okay? Which means 87.3% of SAG's members did not qualify for health benefits. And before you say, well, there are just too many actors, that's not my fault. Let me just tell you that there are working actors who can't get to that $26,000 number. There was a, an actress that I interviewed for my podcast 
who booked 13 jobs last year, 13 speaking roles on streamer shows and couldn't get to the $26,000 number. That means the minimums are way too low. That means people aren't paying enough because 13 jobs for an actor is a career year. Like you should That's be able to retire year. on that year and she couldn't qualify for healthcare. That's why they're on strike. Yeah. And explain to people why that should be a career year because of things that you, we used to have that used to make people like actors and writers money, things like residuals. So if you don't, if you don't work in this industry, explain that to people so they understand. Sure. Um, it used to be in television as a, a writer or as an actor, or by the way, as a director, although they've made themselves highly irrelevant in this conversation because they took a very average deal from the Alliance. So they're not really a part of this anymore. And I don't think they'll ever be a part of this anymore in terms of actually impacting how people get paid. But putting that aside for a second, it used to be that you would get paid to write a script for an hour of television, uh, an episode of ER, um, or you'd get paid to be in that show to perform as an actor. And that number was nice, but then the show would rerun once or twice and the writer would get paid again and the director would get paid again and all the actors would get paid again. Those are called residuals. And that's gone now because when you sell a show to a streamer, it just sits on the server in perpetuity. It never has any life beyond that server. If you make a show for Netflix, it's not like Netflix is later going to turn around and sell it to Hulu and it's going to have a new life and generate more money or sell it to USA Network and put it on basic cable and generate more life and generate more money. All that afterlife is gone. You get what you were paid up front. And so if what you get paid up front is not enough to sustain you, well, then you're going to be one of those actors who's driving Uber. And there's nothing wrong with driving Uber or, or DoorDash. It's just that I think there's a feeling that once you get your foot in the door in Hollywood, once you do get that dream job, once you're staffed on a TV show, that really should be it. Like you should be okay at that point because you've had the opportunity, you've met it with your talent and your hard work, and that should be all you have to do in order to sustain a life. Not so anymore. There are a lot of writers who are working on staff or on staff on shows and still driving for DoorDash. Um, that's a problem. Because eventually yeah. you're going to have the guilds collapse. And once the Writers Guild and SAG collapse effectively and you turn Hollywood into just a giant gig economy, who's going to write the shows that are going to make all that money? Who's going to write the movies that are going to draw people back um, into the theater? In a weird way, we are trying to save the business from the people who own it. I mean, a recent Guardian article said that the preferred state of every corporation in America is one in which employees make just enough money to survive and the CEO and investors earn enough money to build, you know, private rockets and Mars colonies, right? I think that's right. And this isn't just an entertainment thing. I mean, the employees of some of the biggest corporations in America, you know, Walmart, McDonald's, Tyson Foods, Kroger, are some of the biggest users of social services like Medicare, Medicaid, welfare programs, SNAP, because these companies are taking in massive profits, but not paying their staff enough to live above the poverty line. And it's a broken system. And we need to come to terms with that if we want America to succeed. So you don't need to be an actor or a writer to understand that this is a problem that needs solving. I agree. And that's that's why I dove in in the way that I did. I mean, I, I'm without portfolio at this moment because I used to sit on the board of directors of the Writers Guild, but I termed out. And I'm not part of the negotiating committee, although I co-chaired it three times um, in 2011, 2014, and 2017. So I've been in that room. But the reason that I decided to do a podcast about the strike on day one of the strike 
was because I, again, I believe it is the front line in a much larger struggle. And of course, once you throw AI in there, the conversation just exponentially grows. But let's take McDonald's as an example. Okay. McDonald's is a massive corporation, but the United States government has decided that a person who works at a McDonald's is just an employee of that franchised restaurant and not an employee of the entire corporation. So McDonald's employees, although they all do the same job, like a fry chef at one McDonald's is a fry chef at another McDonald's, and yet they're not unionized. So there is never a massive union action against McDonald's or any other national chain in that way. How can they ever get their rates up? How can they ever get more benefits? How can they ever achieve an actual living wage? They can't strike against McDonald's. They can only be 20 employees striking against one McDonald's licensee. Um, that's not how labor works in America. Labor only works when you have massive numbers. And I think we should be really clear that we shouldn't be thinking of these Hollywood strikes that you're a part of as something remote that has no relationship to other people's lives. That same no. Guardian article I was talking about pointed out that Hollywood may have a lot of flaws, but probably one of their most redeeming qualities is that it is a strongly unionized industry. Unlike most places, people in the entertainment industry do have the ability to collectively fight back against abuse, whether that comes from the threat of AI or some arrogant CEO's greed or whatever. So the part and parcel of the people striking in Hollywood, collectively, by the way, and people should understand that the actors and the writers striking together is something that hasn't happened since the 60s. But they're doing so to kind of draw a line in the sand to say these excesses of inequality have got to stop and the workers deserve to be protected from whatever it is, the rise of technology, the lack of uh, uh, livable income. And I think we need to remember that whatever the actors and writers win here will ultimately help the workers in America because we're setting a precedent. Yes. And by the way, the last time uh, the writers and actors struck together was in fact 1960 and it's how actors got residuals. Okay. So very, yes. very real impact of that. But remember, there are other unions that work in Hollywood. Um, IOTSE, their deal comes up next July and the Teamsters, their deal comes up next July. These are certainly not, you know, glamour people. These are the people who are driving the trucks. These are the people who are actually making production possible. And if you don't deal with the writers and the actors, good luck dealing with the Teamsters. I know those people. I know their leader. They're not screwing around. This all has to be addressed. And I, I just want to say one thing about CEO salaries, because it's something that comes up a lot. I see it on a lot of picket signs as I'm walking the lines um, at Fox, where I happen to pick it because the parking is the best. But that's another issue. Um, <laughs> I don't give a shit what CEOs make. I see it yeah. talked about all the time. Okay. David Zasloff makes $34 million and Tim Cook of Apple makes $199 million. I don't care. If you as a CEO can go before your board and demonstrate why your value is so great that you deserve $199 million in a calendar year, good for you. And I mean that sincerely. Yeah. Like, Sincerely, I agree. That's capitalism. That's fine. Okay. Just don't tell me that writers and actors aren't worth something. Okay. Don't in the same breath that you're telling me that you are worth $199 million say that the writers and actors who made the shows that made you that wealthy aren't worth something. And, and for me, it's really important that your listeners understand this. And I know there are a lot of them. For me, this strike is not about fairness. These strikes are not about fairness. 
I think most people think they are treated unfairly. And I don't expect a lot of people to worry about whether writers and actors are treated fairly. They got their own lives to worry about. This strike is about extinction. Be really, really clear. This strike is about survival. This is about, can you make a living anymore as a writer or an actor or a production designer or a UPM or a truck driver? Are you going to be replaced by machines so that you can no longer feed your family and therefore you and these guilds, these unions go extinct and pull the business down with it? The way that it's going to impact the people who are listening to your show is that they're going to wake up one day and all of their all the shows that they watch are going to be written by AI, performed by AI, directed by AI, and they're all going to look and smell like AI. And I don't think they're going to be, I don't think your listeners are going to be happy when that's the landscape of Hollywood. And that's the line we're drawing. Well, let's talk a little bit about that because I think this strike is about two things, right? I think it's about, in many ways, the rise of AI and sort of class warfare. Who deserves to be paid for what work, right? Like, how does humanity fit into a world with growing artificial intelligence? And who gets to succeed in our society? Do profits and success only belong to the ultra-rich or the corporations? Or do the workers get to earn a living wage as well? Do you want to talk me through these two things? Let's start with AI. What do you think? I mean, because I think we have to keep in mind that- Let me me, me do in reverse order if that's okay. Sure. Let's start with class. Let's start with class warfare. Yeah. first thought that popped into my head was this. Not a new number. Since 1980, which was the election of Ronald Reagan, $50 trillion in the American economy has moved from the bottom 90% to the richest 1%, okay? The biggest migration of wealth in human history. It's happened under Republican presidents, but Democrat presidents too. It's happened because, as you said, stock buybacks, it's happened because of laws written by lobbyists, and it's happened because of just outright corruption. But the point is, more and more Americans believe that the rules are designed to keep that richest 1% richer. And it's hard to make an argument that they're wrong. It does seem like the government is there to make sure that nothing disturbs the richest 1% in the country. Okay, is that a good thing? Let's have a national conversation about that. Is that a priority that the rest of us can wrap our brains around and feel good about? I would argue no. Um, I think it creates a permanent underclass, and I think it will create something that looks a lot like social warfare. But forgetting that for a second, what I know that it's doing is it is squeezing the shit out of the American public. Most Americans right now could not withstand a $500 medical bill, okay? More than half of Americans could not withstand a sudden $500 medical bill. Well, that's a problem. That's an unstable circumstance that is not acceptable on any level. So yeah, of course, I believe something needs to be redistributed. Yes, I believe tax laws need to be rewritten. Yes, I absolutely believe that lobbyists need to get out of the lawmaking process, of course. Yes, I believe that stock buybacks are a total fucking disaster because all they're doing is making the ultra-rich ultra-richer. They're not in any way contributing to the companies. And this leads me into my argument about AI. Let's assume for the moment that AI is the most awesome goddamn force unleashed on the American economy maybe ever. Okay, because if AI goes unchecked, you'll have a jobless economy. You'll have no truck drivers, no teachers, no anything. 
Okay. It'll just be AI. No, and people need to understand that we're talking no paralegals, no surgeons, no, you know, all these other jobs that, uh, that, that computers can do. You feed it into them, it comes back. But they, a lot of it, we have to keep in mind, they're learning from work that humans have already done. These machines are not learning on their own. They're learning from work humans have done. So where do we keep humanity in the equation there? Right. So it will be a copy of a copy. I mean, I look, I had right. AI on my podcast. I interviewed AI and AI answered me and I said, can you be a teacher? Yes. Can you be a truck driver? Yes. Can you run a studio? Yes. Do you think you could host this podcast? Yes. There's nothing AI can't do. Um, can it do it as well as humans? Of course not. Can it, um, is it a human? No, it's not. But the point is, as I think about those eight white males, sorry, but that's what they are, who run the companies that compose the AMPTP, the Alliance of Motion Picture Television Producers, those eight males who are making at a minimum $30 million a year and therefore may not be in touch with what it's like to take your medication every other day to make 30 pills last 60 days, which most Americans have to do, okay? Those eight white males. Okay. If we give them the keys to the most awesome goddamn force of technology ever unleashed on our economy, AI, what are the chances they're going to use it for good? In your gut. <laughs> what are the chances that they're going to look at it and say, how can we best benefit the public by using this new technology that God has just dropped in our laps? I'd say the chances are zero. I'd say that just their DNA, not only as individuals, but as corporations is, how can I maximize profit off of this? And so who would you rather have in control of that awesome goddamn technological force of AI? Would you rather have control of it in the hands of those eight $30 million a year plus dudes? Or would you rather have it in the control of the Writers Guild? who will say, okay, how can we build guardrails around this so that it can be a tool in our storytelling, but doesn't replace human beings? That's what the fight about AI is about. And if you believe that those eight CEOs would use AI as a force for good, you have not been paying attention to the American economy. Yeah. It doesn't take much imagination to see that this technology will overtake us if we don't put up guardrails and fast. But I think the question you're asking is, who's going to put up those guardrails? Because we can see it's pretty clear that the people who are going to profit the most from it are not going to regulate it because they're going to make the most profit. So really, the only institutions right now with the power to enact any sort of binding rules around AI that might serve to protect the working people from being decimated and obsolete by the rise of machines are the people who speak for the people. And that comes back to unions. We need people to stand up for people. We need collective bargaining on behalf of humanity or humanity will be out of a job. So we have to start regulating AI now before it becomes so widely used that it's impossible to roll back because by then, much like with streaming or the internet itself, the genie will be out of the bottle, right? And we're going to be in serious trouble. So things like union contracts are the guardrails that we're going to have to use right now. So it's essential for all industries that the workers are in line to strike to win this battle because it'll be people like the Writers Guild and the Screen Actors Guild contracts, which will go down as the first major efforts to write 
rules, reasonable rules to govern this type of expanding technology. So much so you guys are going to have to ask for things in your contracts that don't even exist yet. You know, I imagine these contracts will involve a fair amount of speculation because we're going to have to figure out where these machines are even going to go, where the technology is even going to go. And I think, well, it's a good thing the writers and the actors are doing this because who better than dreamers to think where this might be? Okay. So a couple things about that. There are three ways to put guardrails around corporate America. And by the way, I just want to state for the record, I'm a capitalist to my core. Yeah. I believe in capitalism. Socialism is a failed ideology. And just last century, it resulted in the deaths of 100 million people. So I'm a capitalist. But capitalism without some sort of regulation devours itself. It can't help it. Yeah. That's, that's its nature. There are three ways to put guardrails around it. One is unions. The other is consumers rising up and saying, no, we will not buy this product anymore. That doesn't seem to be happening. Okay. In other <laughs> words, I don't see anyone saying I'm boycotting movies and I'm boycotting streamers uh, because I, I demand that they take the Writers Guild and SAG seriously. I don't, I don't see that happening. And the third version is government. Government can put guardrails around things, but not if Republicans exist. If Republicans are anywhere close to power, government will not put guardrails on uh, industry or corporate America in any serious way. It's just it's just not what they do. And those are the guys who Republicans take their money from. So the, the basic forces of economics are against you there. In my own state, in California, there is a bill going through the state legislature right now that states that if a truck is 10,000 pounds or more, it must have a human safety operator. We used to call them truck drivers, but now they're human safety operators. Guess what? That bill hasn't passed because big tech is fighting it so goddamn hard. Big tech is saying, wait a minute, why does a truck that's 10,000 pounds have to have a human safety operator? Why? We can have AI. AI can drive the fucking truck. Okay, do you want to be on the highway with a bunch of driverless trucks? I don't. That sounds like a James Cameron movie to me and not one I want to be a part of. So if you remove the public as a guardrail and if you remove government as a guardrail, there's no one left but unions. And I believe there's no one left but the Writers Guild and SAG in order to do, as you say, create a precedent so that somebody out there has put in contractual language, this is as far as AI goes. This is, this is the fence we're building around AI. And I just want to say to people who think that progress only moves in one direction and you can't put the genie back in the bottle. I've heard all that a million times. I just want to say there is a precedent here. If you are in the business of making weapons, progress was the atomic bomb. Like you can't do better than that. You can't kill people more efficiently than an atomic weapon or a nuclear weapon. Okay, so yeah, that's progress, 1945. That was big time progress, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But we collectively, as human beings, as the human race, decided that may be too much progress for us. That, that maybe wasn't a good idea. And we collectively decided we're going to harness and we are going to put reins on that technology because we don't want to use that technology anymore. And we haven't. So it has happened before where human beings have said, this is dangerous. We all need to agree on this. I think a conversation like that is going to be necessary about AI. I think so too. 
Did you know that your temperature at night can have one of the greatest impacts on your sleep quality? If you're someone who wakes up too hot or too cold, I highly recommend you check out Miracle Made Bedsheets. Inspired by NASA, Miracle Made uses silver infused fabrics and makes temperature regulating bedding so you can sleep at the perfect temperature all night long. Using silver infused fabrics, Miracle Made sheets thermoregulate and keep you at the perfect temperature so you can get a better sleep night after night. Plus, Miracle Made sheets are just super nice and they feel just as comfortable as some of the sheets used at five star hotels. So go to trymiracle.com slash politicsgirl to try Miracle Made sheets today. And whether you're buying them for yourself or as a gift for someone else, if you order today, you will save 40% off. And with the promo code politicsgirl, you'll get three free towels and save an extra 20%. That's a pretty great deal. And Miracle is so confident you're going to love their products that they've backed them with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you aren't 100% satisfied, they will give you a full refund. Upgrade your sleep with Miracle Made today. Go to trymiracle.com slash politicsgirl and use the code politicsgirl to claim your free three-piece towel set and save over 40%. Again, that's trymiracle.com slash politicsgirl. So I just got home from Toronto and I went into the bathroom and my husband was like, oh wait, there might not be any toilet paper in there. And then he was like, nope, duh, we have real paper. And then he went and got a bunch of rolls. And that's the thing about having toilet paper delivered. You don't run out of it and you don't have to worry that you didn't pick it up from the store. When you subscribe to Real Paper, it ships free to your door in plastic-free packaging and you can schedule it so you never run out. Plus, along with the convenience, Real Paper is good for the environment. Do you know that we cut down tens of thousands of trees every day just to supply America with toilet paper? Well, we do. But real paper is made from 100% bamboo. So instead of impacting entire ecosystems of forests, they're making their toilet paper from a plant that can be harvested and regenerated incredibly fast. And real paper is the best kind of eco-friendly because it doesn't make you feel like you're sacrificing anything to help the earth. I was genuinely concerned that at the end of the day, I might not like this product as much as I liked the idea of this product. But then I tried it and it's great. As a toilet paper snob, I was shocked that it didn't feel like a downgrade. Plus, Real has partnered with One Tree Planted, so every box of Real that you buy funds reforestation efforts around the country. So while other toilet paper companies are cutting down trees, Real is actively trying to help replace them. So give it a try for yourself. Head to realpaper.com slash politicsgirl. And if you sign up for a subscription using my code politicsgirl, you will automatically get 30% off your first order and free shipping. That's R-E-E-L-P-A-P-E-R dot com slash politicsgirl or enter promo code politicsgirl to get 30% off plus free shipping. Make the change for good this year and switch to real paper. Real. It's paper for the planet. You hear me talk about AG1 all the time. We've had AG1 as part of our routine for almost two years now. It's a simple daily habit that's easy to take up, but it makes such a discernible difference in how you feel. I told you recently how much of a difference it made in my dad's life, but my husband, who is half his age and a hundred times more active, is also thriving on it. You can take AG in the morning or in the afternoon before working out or before starting your day. I always found I felt best when I took it in the morning on an empty stomach, but Sean takes it midday, so you figure out what's best for you. As someone who's never actually responded that well to multivitamins, I never felt anything other than great on AG1. Just one daily serving gives you the comprehensive foundational nutrition you need and supports energy, focus, strength, and clarity with 75 high-quality vitamins, probiotics, and whole food source ingredients. 
AG1 is not only a high quality all-in-one solution for daily foundational nutrition, it also saves you time, confusion, and money, with each serving costing less than $3 a day. So if you're looking for a simple, effective investment in your health, try AG1 and you'll get five free AG1 travel packs and free one year supply of vitamin D with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash politics girl. That's drinkag1.com slash politics girl. Check it out. You won't be sorry. For people who don't know, Justine Bateman, who most people probably remember from Family Ties or is Jason Bateman's sister, she's a former SAG negotiating committee member. She's also in the WGA and the DGA, but she's also a coder with computer science degree. So she wrote this amazing piece um, where she says she understands better where we're kind of going with this. And she's been incredibly vocal that AI has to be addressed now or never, that she believes this is the last time any labor action will be effective in this business, that if we don't make strong rules now, the studios simply won't notice a strike three years from now, because at that point they won't need humans. Like we are hearing these stories about scanning actors' faces now, learning the vocal patterns. They're being trained, these computers are being trained to write scripts by watching older TV series or downloading successful screenplays. Ultimately, I was saying before, the computers can't learn any of this without the human work. But if we wait too long, the humans will no longer be able to receive any recognition for what the computers couldn't have done without us. And I think It's really essential what Justine points out. The actors and the writers have to put in these ironclad protections. They need to put in these guardrails now on behalf of not just the workers in Hollywood, but what will come down the pipe from AI in the future. Because like you were saying, the studios won't need, if they're using computers for everything, the studios won't even need Teamsters or IOTC crew members or DGA. They won't need any of it, right? They will need maybe a software project manager and then eventually they won't even need that. So we are running the risk of taking humans out of the picture for the bottom line. And I think, if I could just take a little side note here, between you and me, I don't think computers can do what humans can do. And I'm sure they will get better. But if you look at the first 20 minutes of the new Indiana Jones movie, I watched that and I felt deeply unsettled by it. Like, I understand the technology is not quite right yet. The computer generated face isn't quite there. So there's what my husband calls the uncanny valley, right? But it wasn't just that. It wasn't just that Indy's face, young Indy's face, wasn't quite human enough for me to buy it. My problem was the whole thing felt like a money grab. Like, are we going to have 10 more Indiana Jones movies after Harrison Ford dies because it's no longer about the writing or the performance or the people that brought you this beloved character? It's about how much money the studio can make franchising it. And I hated that. It made me so uncomfortable. The humanity was so lacking from it. And then I watched the flippin' Mission Impossible movie, and I get that that star doesn't even use stunt people, so you can really feel the humanity right in your face there, but I felt something in that movie. I cared, and it's the same thing with Barbie. I can't stop thinking about that movie. That film is the best of humanity. It's what it looks like when filmmakers and writers and producers work together to create actual magic, and then I compare that with the most recent Pixar movie that tanked Because I think that's what it looks like when studio executives no longer care about stories and just sort of crank things out like it's in the bag. And I don't want more of that. The reason we have art in the first place is to represent the human experience. And if we allow computers to learn the human experience and then try and play it back to us, I don't think it will ever, I think we will suffer for it. Oh, look, you're talking to someone who spent his life, 
his career telling stories. So obviously I agree with you. Um, yeah. I, I think people need stories. I think they need them more than ever. They, they ennoble us. Uh, they enlighten us. They, they delight us. They inspire us. And sometimes they educate us. All that's important. Again, AI is not an evil in itself. No, it's a tool. But I believe that the people who run our, our media companies can use it in a way that will destroy. Um, and remember, there are eight of those companies now. You're going to wind up with four, okay? They're all going to eat each other. And you're going to wind up with four companies, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, and Disney, who are going to control 99% of the media consumed by the world. That's four white dudes that are producing 99% of the media consumed by the world. I want you to think about what that means in terms of democracy, in terms of breadth of opinion, in terms of what art is being used for, uh, in terms of its, its propagandistic potential. That is a scary fucking proposition to me. Yeah. And everything is moving in that direction, except the Writers Guild and SAC. Those are the people that have decided, nope, this is the line. Because you could take the movie Barbie. You're looking at a world five years from now where that same kind of movie could be written and produced inside a computer. No trucks, no sets, no set builders, no set dressers, no costumes, no makeup, no hair, no nothing, no actors. It's all happening inside software and it will be lit the same and it will look the same and the actors' faces will move even though they're not actual people. They'll all be the representation of scans and the cost of it will be minimal and it will blow out to the entire public and people's standards will just get lower and lower and lower until they think, oh yeah, that was probably the best movie of the year because they got nothing that can beat it. That's what's coming if we don't win. Yeah. Right. And listen, you have a you have a meeting today. I think the writers are meeting as we speak today. The writers are meeting. What are you hoping to get from that meeting? What are you guys looking to get? Well, I'm a little skeptical of that because here's what I think happened. Um, I think over the course of the last three weeks, the studios, uh, the AMPTP has been in shock that SAG went out. I think they knew the writers were going to go out. They guaranteed that the writers would go out by putting a deal in front of the writers that the writers couldn't possibly accept. So it had to be part of their design that the writers would go out. Whether that means they're trying to break the union or not, I don't know. It may not be quite so mustache twirly as that, but they they certainly want um, they certainly wanted to damage the writers' guild. But I think they knew the DGA, the directors' guild, would come in and make a deal, which the DGA always does. And I think they were sure that SAG would come in and make a deal. Um, SAG didn't, and I think for three weeks uh, the MPTP has been in shock that SAG is on strike. And what I've sensed and what I've been a part of during those three weeks is a lot of back channel conversations in which the CEOs were recognizing we actually have a problem here. We better start talking to the Writers Guild. And those back channel conversations were beginning to loosen up. Everything was moving in that direction. Okay. That individual companies were saying, I don't know if the AMPTP makes sense anymore. It is a little bit of a false construct. Maybe we should just sort of go cut our own deal. And I think that the person who runs the AMPTP heard about this and said, holy shit, I can't have companies going and making back channel deals with the DG with the WGA. 
So she got everyone together and said, we're going to say to the WGA, we're ready to talk again and brought them in for talks today. We'll see. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm being too skeptical. Maybe they came up with some real new proposals that are actually going to move things. But I suspect, having been in that room three times and knowing the people who run that room, I suspect it's a stunt. Um, I think it's a little bit of a hip check to see if the Guild Resolve has weakened at all. They're going to find out that it hasn't. And I suspect those talks are going to break down. I hope I'm wrong. That is my educated guess about what's coming now. Well, listen, I think the bigger picture is what we need to be looking at, right? Like in every industry, people are being given just the right amount of hours to stay underneath where they need to be for full-time work or to qualify for health insurance or to qualify for benefits or a pension or a living wage. The corporations we both understand as capitalists have a fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders, but not to their workers to make sure that they pay people as little as possible so they can rake in as much profit as possible. And it's the system itself that needs to be changed. At the end of the day, we recognize that the average American has less resources, less time. They don't see their loved ones. They're consigned to this worker status that has very little value anymore. And like you said, we can't even use politics anymore to say, hey, help us regulate this. Hey, help us do this. Because America is completely divided right now. That's what you and I usually talk about is politics, right? At the end of the day, we are divided and we can't look to our government to say, please make these rules for us because they can't agree on anything right now. So we have to say, what does the American worker need? What does the American person need? And I think we all want the same basic things, which is food, shelter, family, safety, respect. And those at the top of the pyramid know that if we all banded together, they wouldn't stand a chance, you know? So they continue to try and divide us. And so we don't see our commonalities. You're saying, oh, this woman didn't want people making back deals, right? So I think how this strike goes will have a major impact on the entire country, on other labor union efforts across the country, from teachers to airline workers. We know the UPS drivers uh, were going to all strike. All the UPS workers were going to strike. And they've come to some sort of a deal, and now they're waiting for their union members to vote on it. But it was the idea that all of these people could go on strike at the same time that really got their corporate owners to pay attention. And I think that's the thing. Like, In fact, there's a lot of similarities, I think, between the actors and the writers and the UPS drivers, right? Like both work in situations with forced overtime, with people who don't know when they'll be getting home, if they can count on what days off, working 14 hours a day in terrible working conditions. And we're saying now like, hey, this is no way to live, right? We'll see where this UPS thing goes. We'll see what happens with you guys. But the instinct of the American worker, whether they're at Starbucks or Amazon or whatever, to band together and unionize, that's where our collective power is going to be. And that's where we need to be supporting the workers of America. We really need to understand that it's not just the writers and the actors who are on strike. It's not just the UPS drivers or the pilots or even the teachers unions that are saying like, hey, don't do this to us. It's collective bargaining in general. It's the labor movement in general that we need to be supporting. Don't you, do you believe that? Of course I believe that, but I want to reframe it for a second, okay? Okay, yeah. Let's look at it from the other side. You mentioned Amazon, okay? Yeah. What In what ways does Amazon benefit from being a company that operates in the United States of America? It gets a healthy, educated workforce. It gets a robust economy loaded with consumers. It has no wars to fight, like it doesn't have to send anybody off into the military um, as 
car companies had to do in the middle of World War II. It doesn't have to deal with any of that shit. It's got television and the internet if it wants to advertise its wares. And it's got almost no tax burden. Those are some pretty substantial benefits for operating in the United States of America. Don't you believe that Amazon then owes something to America? Forgetting what it owes to its workers. Doesn't it owe something for the great blessings that it enjoys just by virtue of doing business in America? Doesn't it owe America for a second a break from this unbelievably voracious, just destroy your competition and squeeze your workers down to absolutely nothing mentality? If you were to ask the chair of Amazon, you know what he would say? He'd say no. <laughs> yeah. No, we don't. Because I've asked CEOs, don't, don't you think you owe America something for all these benefits? Nope. My obligation is to my shareholders. That's the problem. Because I don't think they actually believe that. I think that's just a bullshit justification for I want to make more money. And so I'm going to blame it on my obligation to the shareholders. I'm saying this as a capitalist. The reason you need to put guardrails around capitalism is because, of course, these companies owe something to the United States of America. They couldn't do what they're doing in any other country in the world. And until we make them understand that they are hurting the collective good, I don't think we're going to get anywhere. I believe for me, and this is as a lifetime Democrat, I believe it all comes down to something that Ronald Reagan said when he was running for president in 1980 against the incumbent Jimmy Carter. He said, are you better off now than you were four years ago? That to me was the beginning of everything. Not are we better off now? But there was an encouraged selfishness to that sort of rhetoric. It was not collectively, how are we doing as a country? It's go get yours, which is a Republican mentality, okay? It is. If you blow that out exponentially, if you if you extrapolate from there, okay? If every company is just thinking, I got to get mine, I got to get mine, and fuck everybody else, fuck the workers, fuck the consumers, fuck the government, fuck the population in general. Fuck the planet. Yeah. Fuck. Oh, oh, thank you. Fuck the planet, of course. Well, then you got a bunch of companies that are just doing what's best for them, and no one's doing what's best for all of us because the government has been completely um, emasculated, and the consumers don't know how to bind themselves together. And look so, where we are. And what's left? Unions. Right. That's it. And if only less than seven percent of the country are members of unions, those seven percent are going to have to have a pretty outsized voice. In this conversation, that to me, what these labor stoppages are about. And why we need government that believes in unions, like the democratic government that is pro-union. And I also, like, I keep thinking back to, you keep talking about capitalism. I keep thinking back to Elizabeth Warren. She kept saying, I'm a capitalist, but I'm a compassionate capitalist. And she had this great quote that I kept for a long time that was like, if you have done well in America, if you have earned yours, if you have created a great company, great success, good for you. You should keep most of it. But you did it on the roads we paid for. You did it with the, the people that we educated. You right. did it using our fire departments, our police departments, what the taxpayers paid for. So there is a give back that has to be happening here. And when we talk about make America great again, people think of the 50s and 60s. They think of this kind of 
Everyone had a little home. Everyone had this. And that was all from government assistance. It was from helping people with GI bills. It was from... Unions. And it was from unions. Yeah. And it was also at a very much higher tax rate for the higher earners and for the corporations than we have today. Under Reagan, it went from 70% down to 28%. And we have suffered ever since. So I think ultimately, we have to look at it like everyone in America faces the same risk. Every time there is a technological or cultural shift, companies will rewrite the terms of their employment to their own advantage. They always make sure that the top executives get the most and limit what everyone else can get. And we have to look back at the Industrial Revolution, which was supposed to give people more time with their families. Oh, these big machines will do it. But all it did was make us have to try and work as hard as these machines, or it ruined blue collar work. There was a time where people said that email was going to speed up our work so we would have more free time. It didn't give us more free time. All it did was give us more time to work. Now we're working so much that companies like France have to pass laws that you can't email your employees after six because that's their time. Technological advances have never truly helped the human worker. They help the bottom line. And in a time where we're sitting here in great technological change, if we don't make the rules and we're just looking out for the bottom line, it's the human beings, the people of America that will ultimately suffer. There's no question. That's, that's what the struggle is about. And that's why these strikes, again, I'm repeating myself, are the front line in a much larger struggle about the corporatization of America. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you for joining us today, Billy. Do you have any last thoughts you want to leave us with before we go? <laughs> um, yeah. Put as a storyteller, um, I've, yeah. worked, I've worked on a lot of movies that are about the triumph of the human spirit. Um, and it's something that ennobles us. And the reason I tell those stories is because they're true. That is ultimately going to be the end of this. The, the human spirit is going to triumph. We are going to seize control of our destiny as, as, a, as, the, as a race. We have to start now. That's all. Um, do it now. It'll be easier. Do it later. And it's fucking Terminator 2. That's our choice. Um, one way or another, we're going to triumph. But how many bodies do you want, <laughs> how many bodies do you want by the roadside when it's done? Let's do it now. When all it takes is a couple laws and some agreement from a bunch of greedy CEOs. That's my. That's, that's where we draw the line. Yeah, and thinking about the we, not the I. I think Correct. that really helps. Correct. Thank you, Billy. It's a pleasure to talk to you. So that was Billy Ray, reminding us that Hollywood might seem like some faraway place, but the writers and the actors on strike right now are really the front line in the battle for the worth of the individual in society. Most of us understand and accept that there are always going to be the big winners in capitalism, and we don't bemoan that. But to have those big winners, it shouldn't mean that the rest of us have to be big losers. Winners should come from extraordinary talent, incredible hard work, or amazing innovation. But we should no longer be okay with success coming at the exploitation of the very people who make that success possible. We don't know what the future of technology is going to hold, but we do know that if we leave it completely in the hands of tech companies, investors, and producers, we can be certain it'll be used in a way to make the most amount of money with the least amount of people. In many ways, these strikes are happening to set a better precedent, a line in the sand that says no more, that everyone deserves to be respected and compensated part of society, not just the tiny group at the top. I want to thank Billy for joining us today and you for caring enough about this country to be here. 
Before I go, and since we've been talking about having a job that pays you enough to keep going, I want to remind everyone that you can help support keeping this project going by signing up to become part of the Politics Girl Premium family. As a member, you'll get access to ad-free episodes of this podcast, direct emails of my rants, discounted merch at the store, hosted Q&A, and the opportunity for in-person meet and greets. To subscribe, click the link in the show notes or go to politicsgirl.com premium to check out our various plans or simply to make a donation. If you think we offer something worthwhile, your help to keep this project going would be deeply welcome. As always, thank you for listening. Now go out and make the world a better place. Until next week, PGF. The Politics Girl podcast is written and performed by me, Lee McGowan, in partnership with the Midas Media Network and produced and edited by Happy Warrior Entertainment. All rights reserved.